Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. And uh, today, Janelle and I are with Reverend Dr. Josh Ritter and Reverend Cheryl West Lewin. Can I call you Reverend? I feel like I can do that, Cheryl. I mean, yes, Cheryl, y'all have heard Cheryl before on the Brew Theology Podcast. Um, we'll get, we'll introduce Josh in just a second. So if, uh, by the way, if you're listening right now, this is a microcosm of what you may or may not experience in the pub, but every time you're at the pub in any location, you're going to have your own organic dynamic experience, whether you're remixing the same topic. Janelle and I used to do three topics in a row, back to back to back in Denver. And with that fail, with the same notes and the same content writers, it was very, very different conversations. And so uh, we just want to get this out to the people of the interwebs, because if you want to start your own interfaith brew theology community and wherever you live uh, that's what we're here for you can email ryan or janelle at brewtheology.org we're online brewtheology.org and instagram facebook brew theology uh, and then twitter is underscore brew underscore theology i don't know how we got that underscore in there but it is what it is that's the that's, that's a tough issue we've got so uh, if you elon, so, elon will probably take it away anyway so. <laughs> Yeah, we don't have that 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 blue thing verified. I don't we know don't have to pay for it. I'm not going to do that, but we're not that important. It's okay. Uh, so if you like it, uh, share it on the lines, on the webs, on the we're on iTunes, Podbean, Google Play. I, I think I I found us in all different kinds of spaces. So wherever you listen, just share it with your friends, and that's how you get people to listen and hear the good things uh, that we have for you. So today we're talking about Martin Luther King, uh, but more uh, more about that. The, some of the people that have come into his life. As we have uh, been introduced to him through Cheryl and Josh's work, and uh, we're going to talk more about interfaith to start, and they'll dive into more of, of MLK and the people that have influenced him, and vice versa. So, to introduce Josh, uh, he's a communication uh, consultant and a trainer and facilitator of public deliberation, who focuses on risk mitigation, diversity education, and conflict transformation. He worked in the higher education sector for over 15 years as a chaplain and a teacher of rhetoric, writing, leadership, and public speaking. He is an interfaith activist, a minister of 20 years, a contemplative Christian, and co-founder of, and a co-owner of Cardia House Consulting. Josh focuses on civic interfaith leadership and religious communication in the public sphere, and his real passion is the practice of engaged contemplative spirituality and reframing the ways we approach religion, justice, communication, and the spiritual imagination. That's, we need to have you back for another podcast. His most recent publication is his co-authored book with Cheryl Falling, The Way of Wisdom, Jesus, that focuses on communication as a mindfulness practice of generosity. And I think that we refer to that in, in, uh, in our talk with Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, any, anything, uh, we've got Cheryl back. So anything, anything new in your bio that you're like, hey, this is new in the last couple months. I need to share this with the people out there. In my bio? I don't remember what I gave you the first time, so that makes it tricky. You should ask, read it and then ask me, but I've been producing some shows. I just produced another show end of March, and so I bring on speakers, and they come around social issues, and I coach them, and they come from all over the country, and this last one uh, should be coming out on YouTube really soon. It was through an organization called Speak in New York. And then we have the Belief and Belonging Festival in Waco, which will be coming up again in Waco on October 21st, which I'm really excited about. And it's the intersections of what it means when we find things that we believe, once believed or trying to believe and how that affects when, where and how we belong. And we'll be doing that again, too. That's awesome. 
Uh, well, Josh, good to have you on for the first time, hopefully not the last time. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so we like we like to kind of give everybody just a little very brief, uh, maybe, you know, could be one minute. We give you a little bit more time if you want. Just a background, spiritual pedigree, uh, kind of uh, what were you raised? What would you identify with today as far as religion, spirituality? And since, um, I don't know, since we're in the summertime right now, what's your favorite summer activity in Texas? It's very limiting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Because normally I would say camping, but camping in the summer in Texas, although some would disagree with me, but for me, it's just kind of miserable. But uh, I mean, you know, unless you have, you get one of those really cool um, air conditioners for your tent and then you're okay. They yeah. have those? They do. We need that for wild goose. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm like, if I'm going to camp, I'm going to glamp. I just, I'm at the age, I think, right. you know, we're at that age of like I don't know I've, I've done the camping I've done the backpacking <laughs> now it's it's the hammock hammock camping yeah and, and you don't even have to worry about the tent you can just so I've got I've got sciatica issues would that be a would that be good for my sciatica I don't I've never slept in a hammock I'm gonna say no probably not all right so Josh what's what's your uh, just background man yeah so grew up um Baptist and um uh, in the South, I mean, in Texas mainly. Um, I had a interesting, um, mostly it was sort of, it was definitely conservative, uh, evangelical, um, maybe fundamentalist in some ways. Um, the, <clears throat> my dad actually was, he got his PhD in the psychology of religion, so he was more on the progressive side. So I got um, kind of a mix of progressive and conservative, um, but definitely um, uh, integrated the conservative part into my sense of self growing up. Um, went to seminary in Atlanta, Georgia at McAfee School of Theology, which is a more moderate to progressive Baptist seminary. And that's where I um, really had a lot of deconstruction going on and uh, still became an ordained Baptist minister, but I am also now confirmed in the Episcopal Church. So I am, um, I don't know what you call that, a Bapto Episcopal or, or an Episcopo Baptist. I don't know how. I don't. I don't think either one of those sound great. But yeah, I like Episcopabdo because Baptisco. Yeah, I like that. That's good. That'll work. Baptisco. Anyway, um, so that's sort of uh, now. I'm um, yeah. I really embrace a more contemplative identity. Um, sort of a embracing the mystical and wisdom traditions within. Christianity, but those uh, mystical and wisdom traditions sort of transcend uh, religious, traditional religious boundaries. So you find a lot of the same or similar teachings in other uh, faith traditions and philosophical worldviews, including Buddhism. So um, yeah, so still committed to my Christian identity, but definitely, like you said, I'm an interfaith um, type person. Yeah, so I, I think this is what obviously brings us all together, Captain Obvious here. So the, the, the four of us really do appreciate that. And uh, 
it's been a it's been a slow process i think for for janelle and i and now how many years in of of you know working alongside people of different faiths has been probably one of the most life-giving things that we've done in our ministry um still i think you know we would say well we still consider ourselves christian people some people try to take that away from us as well like no you can't take it away but some people would like to so i'm sure you've gotten that too throughout your your ministry career people saying no josh you're not really a christian cheryl come on now <laughs> yeah that, we'll, we'll let that be let that slide so but we are talking specifically about inner interfaith mlk uh the interfaith hero but let's kind of bird's eye view come down so what is your working definition of interfaith as it applies to your current work? And then how does that compare and contrast to other working definitions of interfaith? I think, I think that was, um, it was really helpful, I think, for people to hear that when we were at the pub a while back. And I think it's, uh, it's good for the listeners to understand the different distinctions there. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Cheryl, you want to go first? You want me to go first? Me? Okay. So... Um, you know, the first thing I'd say, there are a lot of different approaches to interfaith, as you all know. Um, sometimes they include um, saying things like we're all on the different paths to the same place. Uh, sometimes they are, the goal is to try to have experiences or worship experiences together. Um, I've been a part of a couple interfaith services before, um, but I think for, uh, and then of course, uh, a lot of times people just imagine um, the attempt, and I think this is actually true a lot of the time, especially when you see the traditional interfaith panel, uh, or let's come to an interfaith dialogue, but <clears throat> inevitably it's a panel of people and you're sort of just listening to them talk have a dialogue and the attempt seems to be to discuss reconciling completely irreconcilable differences um which doesn't always get you anywhere that's sort of satisfying or helpful um other than it really does highlight the the difference without um getting to um a way to move forward together so i think what we are um hoping or at least in our um yeah theological differences what we're hoping for is um doing it's more of sort of an action oriented thing where we are <clears throat> figuring out what our common ground is figuring out uh, not focusing on our theological differences but focusing on our shared values focusing on what we have in common um and then doing good work together What's the good work for the for the common good? And I know a lot of people have different definitions of the common good, but what's the good work in our community that we can do together that we all agree is good work? You know, like we all want people to have homes and we all want people to be literate and we all want people to have food. You know, these are things that most everyone from any tradition can agree is good for everybody to try to get those things. Um, and so ours is a very sort of service oriented, um, not in a we're going to come help and save the day sort of a mentality, but the work of solidarity is, um, I think, our uh, approach or our attitude is um, humility and openness, uh, trying to practice receptivity. Um, part of the contemplative approach is is practicing receptivity. We tend to think that there's 
the only options we have are to be passive or aggressive or passive aggressive, but um, within the Christian tradition, Jesus actually offers us the uh, a fourth or whatever number option you want to count it. Um, the, but you could, some call it probably the path of the middle way is uh, receptivity, uh, which is not passive or aggressive, um, but sort of an acknowledgement that we're we're all in this together. We're all interconnected, and uh, your um, your heartache is my heartache, and my heartache is your heartache. And so, if we follow our our broken hearts, then what? How does that inspire us to um, do some good things together? Um, and that's sort of, I think, the main civic interfaith uh, difference is trying to figure that out because so often. I think folks, when they hear interfaith, it's kind of, it just brings up a lot of fear, right? Um, Because we're talking about territories, you know, Uh, when we talk about human beings and our, and our ego self, we're always talking about territories. And if you're coming into my territory, then you better be willing to accept what I'm putting down. And um, maybe I'm going to aggressively come into your territory and try to get you to to believe because you know we we have this uh real powerful drive in us to know that we are right and when we know that we are right then we have a deep desire to convert um whether that's a religious conversion or just converting you to any one of my opinions that i have decided are actually truths and so uh we're we're talking about us versus them territories now theologically i think we might call this uh, different types of idolatry, right? Because when we when we know that we know that we know that we possess absolute truth, then that is an idolatry. And then we're sort of just trading in idolatries. And I think that's why people get so worked up about interfaith is because it's a challenge to their particular um, system of idolatry that um, Jesus actually has kind of a big problem with. Uh, and so does uh, all of scripture. So, yeah. Yeah, this could probably be like another another conversation. It could take us off, but uh, the I guess the reality, the practicalness of interfaith versus intrafaith commonality. Which one, in your experience, has been more difficult throughout the years of working with people within your own tradition? Who have sometimes I'm like, wow, we're like very very much opposites here, or people within uh, the interfaith tradition. You can answer that shortly. I know that's a loaded question. I mean, my answer would be. Uh, intra-faith is actually fairly difficult. Um, The inter-faith, you know, I mean, it depends because not everybody from every tradition is interested in inter-faith. And that, I think, is like one assumption that is made oftentimes um, is that if you're going to engage with people of different faith traditions and philosophical worldviews, they will automatically be open to that interfaith uh, piece, but that's actually not true. So, but I think within, within my Christian tradition, I just, you know, I've had so many more experiences and encounters with resistance that for me, that's a really difficult piece, primarily because, um, there are certain versions of Christianity, especially, that are very closed systems, and any sort of difference, uh, theological, cultural, ethnic, whatever difference is perceived as a threat, and any time a threat 
is perceived, then defenses go up. And so we're back into this territory uh, that I was talking about earlier. Um, and so anytime you have any kind of defensiveness, then you have aggression and you have uh, sort of an us versus them mentality. And we have to, um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's where things like purity culture come from, right? We just, we've got to keep our particular brand of X always as pure as we can. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the resistance, I think, is is from that impulse. And I think what's interesting is on the other side of that, when you're engaging in deep interfaith work or multi-faith work, the the world opens up in a really beautiful way. And there's so much that can be done when you cultivate those relationships. But that fear of what might happen just shuts the door on that possibility um, where Cheryl, where have you kind of experienced some of that um, or noticed like that interchange of fear versus what it's really like to do interfaith work? Great question. Fear is really at the heart of so many of our actions when it comes to engaging in something that is new or that resistance to. And so I think recognizing where fear is driving us can, or someone else can give us a lot of compassion, first of all. And so I think one of the places I've seen it come up is the fear of universalism in that if we engage with others who aren't of our tradition, then we will lose our faith. Second is that if we engage with other traditions that, or let our children or our friends or whomever, that they will convert to other traditions. And then um, kind of this idea that this engagement is only of certain political persuasions. And so to do this kind of work will lead to certain political actions that are not aligned with my particular political beliefs. So it's some sort of slippery slope towards um, a political party or political affiliations or political um, agendas. And so what's been really interesting for us is we've done this work for some time now and, and been a part of organizations that have done this work is to see when it's done really well is the space that can be held and even opened up for like what Interfaith America is doing right now and doing extra work to say we're looking for conservative evangelicals and we want to hold space for you and we want more of you because we realize that's where we have the least amount of voices and so we'll go and look and ask and and want those people to come to the table and so i think that it, it you know the fear of either of, of watering down or losing oneself has much more to do with a fear of do I actually know what I believe? Am I confident in who I am? Are my children confident? Is my congregation or synagogue or what, what be it strong enough to withhold this encounter? And we know from research that people who encounter others with different belief systems actually clarify their own beliefs from those encounters and that they have to ask big questions of their own beliefs. It's just like when you have to teach something that you've learned and you don't really know it until you have to explain it. 
And so they begin to really dig down and and you also begin to learn what is the what has been more acculturation and what has been nationalism and what has been all the other trappings yeah. of this belief and what is really what matters at the end of the day, which can be a threat when a system has been built on keeping gatekeeping and keeping people in based on fear that if we don't go past these things, if we don't ask these questions, then they'll never leave. They'll never wander. They'll never be able to, and it's not necessarily conscious, but it's just, we don't ask certain questions and we don't move these ways. And if I encounter someone else who asks me those questions that I have to, maybe I have to drop off some of those beliefs. I still have this core foundation, yeah, but I still question those things. And so I think it's just, I mean, it's the logical fallacy for a reason, but is that slippery slope? I, if that um, begins to answer and unwrap yeah. a little bit of that. That helps. Thanks. I definitely think that, uh, that fear obviously is, is a huge motivator. Uh, love is the, uh, those are the, I mean, if I was going to speak in a binary, which I hate doing, but fear and love motivate most of what we do in the world. Uh, and, and hopefully we're in this conversation, we're moving people towards a, a loving response of in this, in this realm. So I, I think that the, a, a good model that was really helpful that that you guys had brought up when y'all were uh, speaking with the Waco community was um, was Patel's uh, triangle there. Um, and can you just unpack? I know people can't see the triangle, but Ibu Patel, obviously a huge interfaith leader, uh, wrote the primer on it. Um, can you dive into like that that whole? How do you talk about a triangle? If people can actually in your mind right now, look at a triangle and Josh and Cheryl are going to walk you through a triangle that I think is actually kind of helpful. So maybe you need to have people draw it on their thoughts. Don't drive right now, but visualize a triangle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'll describe it. I yeah. can describe it and, and we'll, let's just do this one together. So if you were to draw a triangle and put at the bottom left, the word knowledge and the bottom right attitudes, and at the top point, relationships. And inside the triangle, you could draw another triangle pointing down, another color if you would like. And so the word interfaith is in the middle of this triangle. And Josh, if you want to start with knowledge, do you want to start with appreciative knowledge or just knowledge? Appreciative knowledge, um, which is knowledge. Um, I, I always think about this as like knowledge that you get curious about because um, we can learn pieces of information about um, other people, other systems, other religions, other philosophies. Um, but until we start to get a little bit more curious, then we won't be able to, to more deeply understand what the knowledge is about. And once we can more deeply understand what the knowledge is about, then we can begin to appreciate that knowledge. It can inspire us. Um, so if I, um, you know, if I know who Thich Nhat Hanh is, and I know that he is a Buddhist monk from Vietnam, um, but then I also know that his development of um, interconnectedness, which in uh, Buddhism is referred to as emptiness, um, but he's also connecting it to the kingdom of God within Christianity, then I can begin to appreciate where he's coming from. I can begin to be inspired by what he is talking about. I can more deeply understand what 
emptiness within Buddhism means, and um, I can start to incorporate that into my own life. So um, knowledge, appreciative knowledge, I think, is one of the main things that actually brings us away from our territory-grabbing mentality, um, which, you know, by the way, goes both ways. Uh, <laughs> progressives and conservatives do it equally well. Uh, territory grabbing and um, believing that they they alone possess the right thing um, and it also doesn't have to happen just in religion we do it with almost everything that we do um, whether it's the right car or the right house or the right <clears throat> vote or the right uh, brand of whatever it is we're buying at the store um, it's that sort of impulse within us um, and so the way to sort of address that um, to address our original fear of not belonging, which I think is our original fear for everybody is like this fear that we just don't belong. Um, then we start to get curious about each other. We get curious about ourselves and we get, we start to figure out what our, um, what our, uh, like Paul Tillich said, our ultimate concern, what is it that concerns us ultimately? Um, and as well, um, talk about with um dr king it might be a sense of nationalism it might be a sense of uh um it might be a sense of racial equity or it might be a sense of uh racial privilege i find it interesting um that at least from my my evangelical heritage one of the things they really tried to do was make that knowledge scary and keep yeah. you from um keep you from exactly what you said from appreciating the knowledge of another tradition so yoga was scary and meditation right. was scary and <laughs> so they they really built a wall around just even that first piece so that you couldn't explore and feel safe at all um mm -hmm. right. so interesting dungeons and dragons also scary yeah. Pokemon, oh my goodness. That was, that was a big one for me, was uh, He-Man and Dungeons oh. and Dragons on Saturday mornings. Do you know? Yep. Do you know I, it's, I, what? I was just going to say it's because it's the power of Grayskull, and there's only one power, Josh. So. By the skin of my teeth, I only got the Castle Grayskull as a toy. So. <laughs> Oh, those who didn't grow up with He-Man, they're like, what are they talking about? It was amazing. What is happening? Yeah, it was. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the that's the that's the deal, right? If you keep the knowledge scary and it becomes uh, the the like chaperone, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that prevents you from from finding that knowledge. Um, it becomes uh, something that is taboo uh, where we don't we don't go there. So that means we can't be curious, you know, it just shuts everything yep. down. Um, the, which by the way, is hard because you're talking about a religious system and religions, in my opinion, are all designed to wake us up, um, to be countercultural, to shake us awake, you know, with, I agree with Thich Nhat Hanh that all of life is religious life, but at the same time, I also agree that, um, I agree with Jesus's diagnosis that the greatest sin that we've ever committed is also religion, because that is what he called hypocrisy, pretend religion, yeah. uh, performative piety, 
that is and it's so it's so powerful because it's so deceptive we don't even realize that we're doing it and protecting and defending and possessing these are all things that are synonymous with a lot of forms of religion today but uh, these are not the things that uh, most religious teachers are teaching. Um, so I, that's why I love appreciative knowledge as a part of the interfaith triangle, because it challenges all of that. Right. And it's really just about observation. So if you're looking for an entry point, it's not even a ton of engagement with people that are in your sphere. It's just beginning to make some observations and they're in, in a more positive direction which is kind of leads us to the attitudes. And with mm -hmm. attitudes, what we know from Robert Putnam's work in American Grace mm -hmm. and other research is that it's what's unique about engaging people of other faith traditions, that when we have a positive encounter with someone of another faith tradition, that we then have this expectation and continue to have other positive encounters with people of other faith traditions because of that attitude. And unlike other social identities, there's very few other social identities that work this way. And so we don't see that with other identities because we create anomalies of them. And we say, that's the exception to the rule. You know, that's my one black friend, right? Mm -hmm. We make that kind of um, narrative in our head but for whatever reason when it comes to religious identity we begin to think huh well if this person is this way then maybe someone else is also this way and so we begin to create these positive attitudes so at the bottom of this triangle we've now created some appreciative knowledge we've had these positive attitudes which bring us as we begin to move up this triangle into the possibility of new behaviors and relationships and these relationships are what make um, the way that we are defining interfaith so different, and we won't have time to really get into this, but then world religions, which are these, is this really abstract knowledge of closed systems of, I know this about Buddhism, I know this about Islam, I know this about all these places, all of these various traditions. And one caveat I did want to make sure that we made is that when we do use the word interfaith, we are also including atheism, we are including worldviews, we are including philosophical worldviews and anything else that you want to put in there interfaith is just the best language we have for it so if you're thinking all we're talking about is buddhism islam judaism christianity it please kind of keep a larger definition in mind yeah when we get to relationships it's because i have appreciative knowledge i have this positive attitude then i begin to be willing to make relationships and you may think well i don't know anyone of a different faith but you most likely do <laughs> and it may not be at first it may just be a different philosophical worldview it may be in your town being in another denomination is a huge deal but you do begin to meet people and especially in our globalized world with the internet and what have you and you have these relationships that change who you are and that's really where we started with MLK and if we have time to get into just that incredible influence that not only he had on the world but that others had on him that then he had because of them cool well we let's go ahead and head there if that sounds good um martin luther king jr was a prominent leader in the civil rights movement who worked to build bridges between different communities 
How did his early faith walk and ministry motivate him to engage in this civil work we celebrate today? One of the things that I like to remind people right off the bat is it's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He was so many things beyond just who we get to celebrate on this bank holiday. He was absolutely a civil rights leader, but he was also a brilliant scholar and a reverend in not a Southern Baptist church, but a missionary Baptist church and the son of a preacher as well. And so he very much was integrating his faith from a very young age, going to seminary, being ordained, and but was also incredibly well-read. And so one of the, the things that we brought up at the pub that may have been a little bit different from what people hear about is that um, the, some of the philosophy he was reading, I don't know that his congregation would have loved, uh, but he was reading everyone and then soon meeting everyone. And so um, Royce is one of the people that we talked about, and we'll just talk about that quickly, but bringing in someone that was not of you know, a traditional faith tradition, but of a philosophical worldview who actually is who who was the first one to come up with the beloved community, which we know and affiliate with MLK. It was more of a scientific concept and it was MLK's reading of his work that he then began to shape it into what would become what we now know as the beloved community and really usually attribute to MLK directly. So that's, that's you know one that's example a, of that's that. just Josiah Royce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's funny because I, I I don't I don't think most people probably are not, are very much unaware of like the the things that he read on the side, and I wonder if that would uh, that would cause a disturbance yeah. in the force in some communities. <laughs> it certainly would. Um, I was a little not sure about how I felt about talking about it, but I felt in that context it was really important for Brew yeah. theology to understand that. Yeah, it was absolutely not even an issue of just protestant or just religious work but it was it was absolutely philosophical scientific everything um, i appreciate i appreciate that. that so okay so um diving into some of these other other um for, for, we're gonna call them friends let's call them friends uh, so y'all mentioned y'all mentioned Tiknat han abraham joshua heschel paul tillich which was referred to earlier uh, and then dorothy day as well I know you might not have time. We may not have time to dive into all of them um, one by one, but can you just spend some time um, talking about some of them that you want to highlight and how did King's ideas and actions inspire these leaders and what impact did those model ideas and actions have on, on their own work and vice versa? I know that I know that Gandhi's different because they weren't in the same um, era, but yeah, you, you can bring up him at some point too, I guess. That, we'll, we'll wait on Gandhi. Let's hold off on Gandhi. Let's stop with, <laughs> yeah. with Gandhi. Yeah. Sure. What's so fascinating is that he was looking at people who inspired him to do the things he wanted to do. And so he was, we see him as this great leader and thinker, which he was, but he was also very young. And he looked at people who were doing things he wanted to do in similar social contexts and studied them. And he didn't say, oh, well, they're not Christian and went and either met them, traveled and asked, or were able to read and so, Josh, if you want to talk about Tignat Han first, and then I'll come back and do some of the later economic piece if you want to intro, because I know how much you love Tignat Han and um, Heschel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> one thing to note uh, as we dive into his 
friends is uh, he, he actually was um, a bit of a contemplative himself. Uh, King grew up, uh, he, he talks a lot about um, sitting in the stillness and the silence of God. Um, he talks a lot about doing that <clears throat> while he's um, out in a boat um, fishing um, doing different things. Um, and he, he talks a lot in ways that are very contemplative, in fact. Um, and his vision that he creates for the beloved community is a fairly contemplative vision, including the, the contemplative practices, contemplative justice practices that he engages in through nonviolence, which <clears throat> nonviolence is actually an incredibly difficult practice if you are not practicing some kind of contemplative practice, um, which is also why um, they had to practice nonviolence so much uh, as a way to teach everybody that was actually going to go do it um, because it's so counterintuitive and countercultural. Um, and part of that training was to um, do things like sit in contemplative prayer. Um, but so also, you know, for someone who is um, practicing a, a more contemplative form of spirituality, um, you begin to uh, perceive the world in terms of threat. Um, and so that is something that I think really prevented him from turning away from these other folks, these friends, right? Um, as Cheryl said, he... Um, he didn't say, oh, you're not a Christian, and so I'm not going to talk to you. Um, he instead said um, to himself, like, I'm going to go meet these people, and I'm going to learn from them, and I'm not going to think of it in a sort of like dualistic way uh, where we're in competition and somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Um, one of uh, two very powerful friends that he had were um, Thich Nhat Hanh and, and Rabbi Heschel. Thich Nhat Hanh was uh, in Vietnam <clears throat> during the Vietnam War and um, helping the Vietnamese soldiers um, as, a, as a Zen Buddhist monk and then realized with the rest of his monastery that they needed to not only be helping Vietnamese soldiers but also American soldiers as well because if, if, if the world is interconnected then a human being is a human being and so those were some very formative years for Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and he developed what's called engaged Buddhism, which he um, tried to popularize. Um, and I think that's when, um, when MLK got in, um, involved in, um, they, um, they met and they had um, quite a few discussions. Um, when Thich Nhat Hanh met King, uh, he said that he sensed that King was a holy man. Even before he got to know King or heard him say anything, he, he said that he could feel like a certain presence uh, with King, and he immediately knew that they were going to be friends. Um, King also nominated uh, Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize, and in that letter, he said, I nominate not Han, he is a holy man. And so there is this mutual respect and appreciation and even admiration. You know, we were talking about appreciative knowledge. We're talking about an 
positive attitude of engagement. We're talking about developing friendships. And so what we see here is King directly engaging with this interfaith triangle, um, which is why we think that that is such a powerful sort of model overall. Um, we also see, I, I mean, okay, so I see, this may not be true, but I, I do see it pretty clearly. Um, parallels between Buddhism and Christianity, the beloved community would be very similar to the Buddhist uh, Sangha, which is also a type of beloved community. And King and Thich Nhat Hanh are using this type of language interchangeably. And so I think that's something that's significant to highlight in terms of his way of doing interfaith um, the same thing happened with Rabbi Heschel, who they became very close friends, um, and they would introduce each other um, at conferences or panels. They would both say that the other one was a prophet or a prophetic voice. They had very high uh, mutual respect and admiration for each, for each other, which is especially significant for Rabbi Heschel, who was, you know, not necessarily inclined to be all that interfaith as a Hasidic Jew um, who came to America to escape the war. Um, and he, though, had this very open and, uh, and receptive attitude towards, towards King and people of different faith traditions, but especially uh, MLK, and um, said that King was actually, um, you know, a needed voice in America, um, a prophetic voice that he uh, heard echoed in the prophets of Hebrew scripture, which is an amazing compliment um, from somebody of a different faith tradition. So uh, in fact, uh, Rabbi Heschel invited King and his family over for uh, Passover for a Seder meal. Um, sadly, King was then uh, very soon to that invitation, assassinated and um, did not um, get to go over for, and experience that. But um, those are the sort of some of the connections that we start to see uh, with MLK, and they're they're not um, tangential, they're not superficial, they're very deep, they're very meaningful, and they are based on a significant level of friendship. Do you, you feel like yeah, specifically, just... sorry, with with Hesh, Heschel? And MLK that because of the prophets and then the Exodus story of liberation and then their own context of can you can you just dive more deeply into the relationship I mean the, the catalyst for that which was it was it both and I mean the, the scriptures that they both held even though they interpreted them differently and then their um their different different but similar context of, of persecution yeah I think it was both um I do know Heschel um always actually his one of his approaches to interfaith was to highlight the shared scripture so he primarily was engaged uh with in his interfaith stuff with christians um but he would always highlight the shared um text right and so i think that itself is one that was a really a catalyst and then i do think um yeah the similar situation right um, and it wasn't just the um, the civil rights movement. It was also the Vietnam War where they found common ground. Uh, King and Heschel and Thich Nhat Hanh all found common ground in terms of uh, <clears throat> being anti-war. Um, King has a really powerful speech that not doesn't get a lot of press these days, but uh, it, was all, it was his sermon was on the Vietnam War. He was very opposed to it. 
um, Thich Nhat Hanh, very opposed to it. Uh, Heschel um, formed several coalitions that were anti-war movements where he was inviting religious leaders to participate in that. And he also participated in King and planning some of those. So, um, so yes, I mean, I think it was the context as well as um, the, the shared, um, the shared text. Yeah. Which is really important sometimes. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, uh, I, I feel like, I mean, every time I read Heschel, I feel more closely aligned to, to his words in my in my soul than I do most Christian authors that I've read so it's uh yeah it's, it's not, it wasn't a huge leap for me personally even just early right. on when I was reading him but I can yeah. imagine you know be, being also in a place of suffering which I will, I, I hope to never understand in, that, in those ways but right. that probably exacerbated that in a good way yeah I think it's really powerful Heschel and and Thich Nhat Hanh both have that same sort of impact on me where I read them, you know, what I off, what I always tell people about Thich Nhat Hanh is he writes the most beautiful things about Jesus and Christianity that I have ever read from anybody. And, and that is 100% true for me. Um, he, he talks about Christianity in the most beautiful ways. Amen. <laughs> Cheryl, did you want to add anything either to those uh, two? I know we've got others as well. And there's the economic impact, um, which is another era that I, th I know that MLK didn't fully get to get into as he would have liked. I was just going to speak to the issue of friendship and how important that is. And, you know, I used to teach this when I talked about writing and how we often put our authors and, you know, talking about the 20s, even in, in silos and who knew who and how they influenced each other's writing. And it's the same thing here that... Um, we don't teach history well, and so we we don't know and realize how much these these people were together and influencing each other and why. And that context is so important. That you know, does MLK you know think about Vietnam without knowing Thich Nhat Hanh? Probably not in the same way. But in that friendship and hearing those stories, he doesn't just empathize he puts his life on the line protesting Vietnam. That was not a safe or easy thing to do and probably not popular with many of the people that had previously supported, well, we know this, that previously had supported him in the civil rights movement who thought, no, the work is here. What are you doing talking about Vietnam? And then Heschel, who also gets involved in Vietnam and understanding their backgrounds and why that matters, in, in that common you know, experience of human suffering and what Heschel had seen in the Holocaust. And then you have Thich Nhat Hanh, who is, I mean, it is a brutal, brutal war that goes for so long. I mean, most people don't realize you've got from what, 1950 to 1975, this occupation and death. And, and so the way that those three really, I mean, there's pictures of them marching together um, against protesting the war that they're able to come together around that those issues and in those thoughts and in those really just kind of understanding of of why that war is happening MLK starts talking about capitalism and he's making friends with more radical people and so MLK makes statements uh supporting Cesar Chavez and he makes friends with Dorothy Day who is often considered an anarchist and radically 
opposed to the systems and structures that are oppressing the poor. And so there are all of these relationships that are occurring and these conversations that are happening all across the country with people. And the 60s is, is such a such fodder for this. But I think we so often study these people as Dorothy Day, Cesar Chavez. And there was all kinds of things happening in and amongst them that are really important. So what I had spoken about some at, at Waco Brew Theology was how that legacy happens. And, and with that economic impact being the next campaign that he was really moving towards, and many people think may have lost, cost him his life even more so because he was speaking against capitalism and the war, was, a, was called the Poor People's Campaign. It was about bringing about some reckoning between what we would now probably call the 1% and, and, and that large gap. And so it, you know, on, first of all, you can look up the Poor People's Campaign. It exists today and it's led by Reverend William Barber III, who was actually very young and on the balcony the day that MLK was shot in the hotel. And he has continued that legacy and he's continued the interfaith legacy, which um, he has worked that, that entire organization is interfaith. And, and then there are others who we've watched since then that like young John Lewis, who, and we have to remember what could have happened if MLK lived longer, if Reverend King lived longer, is that we're just now losing some of these leaders. Um, like uh, Loris Huertas, when we talk about Ch Cesar Chavez, is still alive and doing work. We just lost John Lewis. And, you know, John Lewis speaks of the divine spark or spoke of the divine spark quite often. And I don't know if he realizes where, you know, that belongs, but that is a very Buddhist language. It shows up in Hebrew scripture, or at least with the Talmud and with those who are in Jewish practice, also shows up with the Quakers which was a huge influence on MLK. And so it's so fascinating. And then he goes on to mentor John Ossoff, Senator John Ossoff, who's Jewish and becomes a Senator in Georgia. His pastor, the whole time he's in Georgia is uh, Reverend uh, Raphael Warnock, who is now a Senator. And the work of Georgia is, we all know what Georgia is like, yet there's this long history of the Jewish organizations and synagogues and the black church working together in Georgia. And we saw that as um, Asif and Warnock ran together for Senate. So I, I think just that legacy is so important because the, they learned friendships mm. and those were genuine friendships and those continued on, um, whether it's with Barber and the interfaith friendships, he's continued with this economic impact, whether it's the political. Um, and so that's what interfaith does that's different is that it's meaningful long-lasting friendships that leave legacy and people continue to do that work because of the influence of the people around them yeah that's really yeah, cool and i think it also goes back to you know we were talking about the territories earlier and idolatry i mean these are the reasons i think that they felt convicted to pursue these different um, we, you know, in Christian language, we might say principalities and powers. Um, they were um, convicted not just to look at racial inequity, but also to look at war, to look at um, poor people's campaign, to look at all these different um, capitalist exploitation. Um, 
And it's really fascinating because, um, you know, these are the economic uh, consequences, but, you know, the theological issues they're addressing are significant and profound. What do we do in the face of such evil in the world? How mm -hmm. do we address atrocity in the world? And these are really profound and disturbing things to think about. Um, and King, uh, you know, approaches it from the position of nonviolence. And even in his um, his paper on laying out the the principles of nonviolence, uh, one of the main principles is that people are not evil. Systems are evil, and people are trapped within those evil systems. So that is what's happening when they're doing these demonstrations and people are beating them and shooting them with hoses and attacking them with dogs. And he says, we don't look at that. We look past all of that into the soul of the human being on the other side and we love them anyway. And that's just the probably the most profound, you know, piece of all of this is how interconnected that idea is within all of his interfaith friendships, including the one he gets from Gandhi, which is ahimsa practice, which is a practice of nonviolence that comes out of Jainism. And um, that is one that sort of transcends all religious difference, you know, uh, with Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, uh, nonviolence is a huge practice in Buddhism. And um, Rabbi Heschel is very influenced by the idea, of course, of systems of idolatry. Um, and um, King is also influenced not just by Tillich, but also by Niebuhr, who is very interested in making sure that people understand the power of sin and evil in the world. Uh, Niebuhr is also another one who uh, has interaction with Rabbi Heschel and actually is the, the main Christian voice who is saying how amazing all of his books are, right? Like, so um, Heschel's, one of Heschel's main books is The Prophets, and you'll see that Niebuhr's the one who's making a book review and a book recommendation for that. So um, you know, we again see all of these intricate which, interconnections. Which, which, sorry, which Niebuhr brother? I always get those confused because they're Richard and Reynold and they're... Yeah, it's, it's Reinhold. Reinhold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not, not H. Yeah. Richard. Yeah, okay. And I think that's another thing that's just, if we were to have a takeaway from this, is that all of them were in places where, though they were respected and important in their own right, in their traditions, we want to talk mm. about intra-faith again. Right. They were receiving great pressure as they stepped out. And it's, you, you aren't serving us anymore. This isn't what we're about. This mm -hmm. is too much. Mm -hmm. Whether it was... Heschel, why have you left the ivory tower where you belong and you do great work? Why are you messing with all of this? It was cute when you marched at Selma, but that's enough. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh is not typical in any way of the of how he's done things. I mean, there's just, you could go on and on. And they found friends that could support them because when you challenge systems, it's very difficult to find support with the people that are in the systems, who are benefiting from the systems, even those who believe the same things that you do and are in your, your religious context. And it was those supports that I think got them through and pushed them to through to do the things that they knew that they needed to do. And they found people who are asking those more profound questions. 
Well, you've you both touched on um, this nonviolent resistance. Do you want to expand on kind of what that is and how that enters into this conversation as well? Sure, I'll I'll start by just again highlighting, um, I guess, sort of the like contemplative approach or the contemplative attitude that's necessary. Um, that all of the folks we've talked about have been influenced significantly by that tradition, I think. Um, uh, Rabbi Heschel even, you know, famously is quoted as saying, uh, we, I felt like our feet were praying, right, as we were marching. Um, and that's a very sort of contemplative um, attitude to take, um, uh, including talking about divine spark, uh, all of these things indicate, and of course, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Zen Buddhist master uh, of meditation, of course, uh, is constantly saying things like, um, we need to sit in silence and come home to our true home, which is the present moment, which he also calls the kingdom of God. Um, and so just a very powerful contemplative connection, um, I think is something that is grounding the effort of nonviolent act action. Um, so um, that's where I would start is to is to note that um, these, as Cheryl said, all these leaders are um, sort of major figures in their field, but also different um, in in many ways. They they both are uh, giants and also. Um, people are like, wait, wait a minute, what are you doing? Uh, and so, but that's always kind of what happens, right? With mystics and contemplatives is they're really amazing uh, leaders in their, uh, in their tradition, but also sort of uh, quirky or, you know, why, wait a minute, what are you talking about now, right? You've gone, you've suddenly gone too far and we, we're, we're too uncomfortable to go with you any farther. Um, and I think this is kind of what happened with nonviolence, right? Uh, because not everybody that if you weren't trained in the in what's today called kingy kingy and nonviolence, if you weren't trained in that uh, to participate in those protests, then you didn't. It's a lot of times, I think people misunderstood it as the form of passivity, um, and it's not. It's very action oriented. It's very what I think would I would say would be re, it's re, it's receptivity, right? It's the ability to hold opposites and paradox and tension. The ability the almost impossible ability to see some per, some human being operating out of a position of hatefulness and then to embrace the hatefulness and transform it into something that's loving and compassionate, which is precisely what turning the other cheek is. Um, that's probably the most profound and difficult teaching uh, and practice of Jesus. And it's the one that most Christians that like no idea what that means. We've turned it into, you've got to be a spiritual doormat, but we, but we really don't want people to walk all over you, but Jesus said to turn the other cheek. And so we're kind of like, thank you, Jesus, we we'll pat you on the head, but that's a very subversive, uh, powerful dismantling practice um, and I think that's something that King uh, he knew he knew that that was that was where the subversion was yeah. and to just to highlight that a lot of people have misunderstood it so much 
that the easiest way to kind of water everything down simply is we have Malcolm X over here and you know Reverend King over here and they're completely opposite and they I mean they certainly had their disagreements but they really were beginning to reconcile towards his death and and come to that understanding because um, Reverend King's understanding was not a doormat and I right. think that was perceived at right. sometimes, but uh, they were beginning to, for one, uh, Malcolm X was seeing and hearing um, the more radical nature with Vietnam and all of these things and, and seeing the difference, but they were beginning to have these different conversations um, that I think media had made them more opposite than they truly were. And I think when you read Malcolm X now, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, it doesn't seem yeah. that radical anymore, but you know, today when we talk about nonviolence, you know, we get into nonviolent communication even and and the way that that words can be violent. And one of the things that I love about the way John Lewis was talking about it, you know, towards 2016 to 2020 was as people were really wanting to know, what do you think about this administration? What do you think about the way the world is right now? And, and what was it like then? And he, he would talk about it being, you know, as they were doing sit-ins in the Senate floor, right? And he would sit, sit, talk about using the same tactics and, and it, was, it was the mindset thing. And it was about thinking of people as a child and having a mother and that they, and, and, and that you could almost use, you could hear him almost quoting this, they know not what they do kind of language. It was, just this tapping into a love and compassion that is very, very hard to understand and clearly comes from a discipline and a practice because he would, he literally described a time when he was basically being curb stomped and, and looking up into the eyes of the people and seeing young boys and what they must have been like with their mother. And that's um, an incredible place that has to come from a kind of spiritual discipline that most people are never going to commit to. Well, and I think, did we just see some of that practice as well in Tennessee um, with, yes. you know, the way they are uh, coming out to protest and, and demand action on guns? We saw that in the gentlemen that were expelled from the the House, mm -hmm. House or Senate. I mean, Absolutely. and then we've seen them responding in these same ways. I think that it's right in front of us. Yes. I mean, I, I feel like because I, the words of Thich Nhat Hanh, and I, uh, Josh, you would refer to this earlier in these spiritual practices, even with the, Cheryl, you had mentioned speech um, and how, I mean, obviously we all know how dangerous speech can be and you can be right and yet horribly wrong in how you present yourself with your words. And Thich Nhat Hanh is very careful about if you don't have a mind, a mindful posture, if you're not practicing mindfulness, then your right speech will never, it'll never work, right? So um, I think that, that that connection is so, it's so important within all these faith traditions or non-faith traditions, whatever you may be out there. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to soapbox, but I, I think to, to reemphasize that again, um, it seems obvious, right? When you look at your own speech and like, what have I said? What, what are the words that I have used that I felt like I was, I was right righteous but i came across like an asshole or like you know it's uh this is just very practical wisdom um, that i think it, it could apply to every scenario really so I, I i appreciate that yeah speech is um such a such a powerful 
thing, you know, it's uh, the way Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it is it's really beautiful because he says, when you have the spirit of mindfulness in your speech, the spirit of mindfulness is the Holy Spirit. And so when you have that attitude, then the Holy Spirit is with you in your speech and Christ is present and Buddha is present. And so it's really just, again, in his normal Thich Nhat Hanh way to be <laughs> such a beautiful writer about it. But reminding Christians where Paul says you have to do everything with love. And if you don't, then it's aggressive and noisy and you're not bringing love and compassion into the world. And so that everything you do in your thinking, in your speech, and in your action should be done as Christ. And so those are the commonalities, uh, like you said, that, yeah, can be applied to any scenario. Yeah, that's just why the work that Josh and I do at Cardia House is built on this framework of generous communication, which we came up with studying these leaders, these theologians and philosophers and all most of the people that we've mentioned today and it is based on resisting the urge to convert someone to my way of thinking and we see communication as communion with another and we understand that you know words start as neutral until we assign power to them and we believe that we have to mindfully notice and compassionately respond to systems of power and the way that power works and those dynamics. And then like moving into the practices it's gonna to take to do that, of being a generous listener and being present and to be able to be non-judgmental, which is you know some of that appreciative knowledge practice to just to be a non-shaming presence when we're with people and to acknowledge those shared values when we can which makes a lot of work on ourselves because we have to know our own values and be able to examine, you know, what are the consequences and trade-offs when I do, because I need to know that, or I'm not, I'm going to get stuck in my own defenses and to avoid that win-loss thinking. Um, and just to, tr to do what we can to be generous with the gentleness of our words, which is not the way that we've been taught. We've been taught this adversarial model that we've got to win every conversation but what happens if we are gentle with our words and if we can reframe, you know, the aggressiveness of these conversations and our tone by returning that with a more generous and gentle response. And so all of those things obviously are adapting a posture and a presence and a practice, but that's kind of the model that we work from with Cardia House in our consulting and our writing and are trying to, you know, bring about into the world. Thank you all for for doing that for for being that pre, like active presence in, in the world and now that we have the internet this is what's great about it is that you can actually go to your website and check these things out so before we do uh leave this time and i i do really appreciate and, and respect you all for your time here so what advice do you have for the listeners uh who are if they're interested in building bridges between different faith communities but they just don't know where to start um mm. if you could just end with that and then i know there's probably a lot that you want to share but uh you know, maybe a few resources or a few examples in your own life. I think I love interfaith. Oh, I was gonna say I love Interfaith America. Oh yeah. And they have mm -hmm. lots of ways to plug in. They have Interfaith America magazine, which is part of their website where you can read stories and start building your appreciative knowledge just by reading those stories. They also have a lot of little grant programs and free 
coursework, it's just so robust. And so if you think, I don't know anyone, you can start by just reading there. So I would love to just plug that, follow them on Instagram, Facebook, go to the website. Yeah. And I would say, I think a really just tangible practice of learning to be a little bit more open um, to other worldviews is non-judgment, which is, which is kind of the heart of nonviolence, right? Is all day long, we're making choices that I like this and I don't like this and I like this and I don't like this. And this is a threat because I don't like it. And I, I love this because it's what makes me comfortable. And uh, this is convenient. So I really like this, but this is inconvenient. You know, we're just always doing that. Um, and so just a really simple, tangible practice is just to start noticing, noticing when I'm making all of those judgments, because I do this, I do the same thing with, with human beings. And I do the same thing with people who have different identities from me. And as soon as I see that person, I automatically make a judgment and I say, like, don't like. And um, so that's just something I think that's a very tangible practice to start to at least think about, right? I mean, we're not going to be experts on it overnight, certainly, but noticing is a good way to start. It just uh, makes me think of an episode from the Orville. I think it's in season three i'm not sure but the, they encounter a world where everybody has a like button or a they vote you up or down on everything any interaction anything you do and it puts people's lives at risk because just the you know just seeing something like on a tiktok and then voting them down enough and then they can they they can be threatened by that and so i think stepping away from that judgment is right just so critical in this world that we're in. Janelle, what are your what are your resources? I know that you're um you, you you've got a few too. Yeah, I mean, I I would plug the Parliament of the World's Religions. It'll be mm. in Chicago in August, and uh, I'll be there with a group from Denver. And I I think Ryan might be joining us for a little bit of it. And there it it, it was a life changing experience to be around. Uh, when we were in Toronto, it was about eight thousand people, several hundred. Uh, religions and traditions and if you want to if you want to jump into the deep end of the pool um go to chicago and see it and they, they stream a lot of stuff and you'll be able to watch a lot of it afterwards if you can't go but it was just very much that transition from inner faith to ecumenical ecumenical experience and getting to really see how the rest of the world functions and that was great and then i did also ebo patel i went to their uh college leadership training uh weekend and we had a table there and just amazing people and amazing work that they're doing very cool thank you so much um yeah well uh josh Cheryl, thank you thank you from the bottom of my heart i i do I love that we live in the same city. And Janelle, don't be jealous. I know you, I know you want to live in Waco too. <laughs> I, I've I've gotten friends to come visit me in Waco, and people are always pleasantly surprised. It's it's uh, it's it's not what people think of, you know, when they think of Waco. Uh, and thank God for the internet, so this can get out there to uh, to the rest of you outside of Waco. So if you have listened to this all the way through, share it on the uh, on the line, if you will, uh, rate or review it five star. Thank you so much. Uh, for uh, for again your time and um, yeah cheers always Thanks. thank you Thanks for yeah us. thank you so much for having us this has been so great yeah it it won't be the last time. Yeah.